Our series this summer is just taking different topics that are suggested by you and looking at what does the Bible say about those specific topics. And the, that's why you have this sheet in your bulletin, and we are continuing to seek new suggestions, so please feel free to submit one of these. You can just leave it, fill it out, leave it on your seat, drop it in one of the boxes. Um, and what we do with these is we choose from them, especially from the ones that get multiple requests, uh, what we're going to preach on. And then we will also talk about the other ones on our deleted scenes, so, which is our live broadcast on Facebook and YouTube that happens on Thursdays. Last week, there was a little bit of an audio problem with part of it, but we, uh, we talked about um, cremation and went, uh, baptism for the dead, which is something that Paul mentions in this whole thing about it. And so you should listen if you want to know more. But um, we get to talk about some other topics in there, and it's really good. So please continue to submit your questions. Um, last week, you had asked about women in leadership, and so we talked about women in leadership. And this week, we are talking about what the Bible says about grace. There's a question that we received a couple submissions on, and I'm really glad that I got a chance to do this sermon because it's been a really good experience for me. Sorry, I forgot. My wife told me I looked down a lot during my introduction. I need to look out. Sorry. So, <laughs> I probably could have left that unsaid. Anyway, um, where was I? Talk about the Bible, something about the Bible, and grace, right. So this is, I'm glad that I got to study on this, because really, if, you, if you'll permit me, I'm basically going to preach this sermon to myself, and you all can listen in, because this is something that I really need to hear. Um, because what I try to do as I'm writing these sermons now is I try to figure out what is the question behind the question. Why do we care about this thing? What, are, what is the need for this subject? And grace is a very important subject in the history of the church. Um, it is very is a key subject in the, in the Old Testament. It is a key subject in the New Testament, and it has been one of the central issues in church history. And for the past 500 years, it has been the most divisive subject in church history. Uh, there has been more fighting over this topic than pretty much anything else. And so, it's clearly a very important thing historically, theologically, biblically, exegetically, all those big words. But what I find is I try to discover the, the question behind the question is it's also a really important thing, probably most importantly, emotionally and spiritually, for our experience as people. I believe that grace is where the gospel really touches our hearts. And so I want to I wanna try and stay focused on that. Uh, and so here's the question behind the question. Here's where it starts. For me, at least. We all feel expectations from God, from others, and from ourselves to perform and to achieve. I feel this as a pastor, that there are expectations for me to do certain things, to, and, and actually a lot of different things, to be a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and I'm not complaining, it's just the nature of the job. Um, my wife has expectations as a wife and as a mother. I'm sure that wives and mothers out there resonate with those, that aspect. You know, we all, in your job or in your position, you, there may be expectations in your friendships, uh, and we know that God has expectations for us, that He has a design for our lives, that He there's a way we're supposed to go. When we confess every week, we acknowledge that we haven't actually met that. And of course, we put expectations on ourselves. And we have expectations of what we want to do and what we think makes what I have to do in order to be a worthwhile person in other people's eyes or in my own eyes. And a lot of times, it's we are imagining what makes us a worthwhile person in other people's eyes. They may not have even said, I'm big on that. I'm really good at telling myself what you all, what I need to do for you all to approve of me. 
even though you, you know, it doesn't actually come from you, it comes from my head. So this, this is a big thing. You know, that we, we, we feel this pressure to meet people's expectations. And for 99.9% of us, we live with the knowledge that we cannot actually live up to those expectations. I think there probably is like 0.1% of people who are convinced that they do live up to everybody's expectations. Um, I think that's a very rare case. I think the rest of us, we are aware of it. We may not admit it or acknowledge it to other people, but either, one of two things, either we know that we don't live up to those expectations, or we think that we're living up to those expectations only because we're hiding our failures. That if other people really knew me and saw through my facade, then they would know I'm a failure. So maybe I've fooled some people, but... If they think I'm okay, it's just because I fooled them, but I, I know I'm a failure. And what this creates is it creates this emotional burden that we have to, to achieve, to, to satisfy people, to try and do more, to make people happy. And it, it can warp us and twist us in all kinds of ways. And it's funny, either, either God specifically points things out to me because I'm preaching on something, or the fact that I'm preaching on it makes me more aware of it. But I can give you a weird, a really weird example of this. Uh, just a small thing that happened to me. I was uh, working out in our backyard at like 6.30 in the morning, because I try and do it before I go to work. Oh, I'll never do it after I come home. So, 6.30 in the morning, and somebody in the neighborhood had their yapping dog outside 6.30 in the morning. And I got really frustrated. But why did I get frustrated? I was awake. My kids were awake. They were very awake. And because my kids were awake, my wife was awake. They were not, that dog, okay, I didn't get frustrated with the dog. I got frustrated with the owner. You don't blame the dog, you know. The owner who left that dog outside. I was getting really frustrated, and I thought about why. They are literally having no effect on me or anybody that I know and love, right? I was frustrated because they were violating the expectations that I have for neighbors or that I feel on myself for neighbors. I feel like, I, I feel a terrible burden when, my, when I realize my dog's barking. Like, I have, I have harmed other people. And so, for someone else to do that, they're violating the expectations I have for myself. I got angry with that person. For no good reason. And I realized, like, this is just one of those weird, I know, it's a weird example, but the way that we just get twisted up in knots over these expectations and, and how hard it is to live in this world. And I think, ultimately, one of our central, most basic desires is to live in a world that's not like that. Right? I think we long for assurance that we can be good enough. For God, for others, for ourselves, we long to not have to impress. We long to not have to achieve. We long for a world where we aren't always being judged, where we don't always feel like we have to measure up, right? We, we long for that pressure to be taken off of us. Because I find it's so reciprocal. It's so, it's, I put it on other people because I feel it on me. And other people, they may not have even put it on me. I just imagined it, and then I put it on other people, or other people may think I'm putting it. And it's, it's just this, it's this amazing just network of, of pressure and, and negativity, and the Bible has an answer to this. And that answer is the word grace. And so we're going to be looking at grace uh, and what the Bible has to say about grace. But here's the thing. Grace, it means something different than the way I think we typically use it in normal conversation. I, for me, when I use the word grace outside of, of spiritual conversations, it's like being graceful 
or having poise, something like that. Grace means generosity, kindness, blessing, giving more than people deserve. Okay? By definition, grace means generosity, giving more than people deserve. And that's important because whenever we talk about grace, we get pulled into this, this like magnet thing where you get pulled to one pole or the other. We, we, our doctrinal fights over the last 500 years have all been about, is it entirely by grace or is, it, or do you earn, like, is your place from God an entirely free gift or is it something you earn? And we try and put people in one of those categories. And we, we get in, and the problem is, we know you can't, you can't be good enough for God. You can't actually make him owe you anything. But if you get pulled to the other side and we say, well, everything is completely, it has nothing to do with anything you've done, then that means there's nothing you can do to appeal to God. And it means that God's grace is entirely arbitrary. And it, it ceases to actually be a comfort. There's actually, in places where that idea of grace, where it's completely arbitrary, has nothing to do with anything you've done or anything about you, or there's nothing you can do to access or anything like that, in places like colonial America where that ruled, there was actually a trend of, um, they called it melancholy, we would call it depression, even suicide, because it doesn't actually answer this question of being good enough. It just makes the answer a secret. You don't know whether God's giving you grace because he might have chosen you, he might not have, but I guess you'll find out at the end. And this is not actually the way the Bible talks about grace. The Bible does not teach that you can, you can earn your salvation, but the Bible does talk about God's grace in a different way than we often get pulled into. So what I'm going to try to do is give us a biblical view of grace, and I'm going to do that by not jumping straight into Paul. This is another thing we're doing with this series, is teaching how to read the Bible, and we often jump straight to Paul. What we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at grace in the Old Testament, then we're going to look at what Jesus has to say, and then we're going to look at what Paul has to say, and Paul will be able to read Paul in a different context. So, let's start in the Old Testament. God's grace enters the story explicitly, like the, the, it really steps onto the stage of the biblical story in Exodus. So, God saves the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, and they sign a contract. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I will take care of you. You will be, uh, you know, loyal to me. You'll be, you know, um, faithful to me. I'll be your only God, right? And there's the Ten Commandments, and they, they sign the contract, okay? Then God says, all right, I'm going to take Moses up on the mountain. We're going to hash out all the rest of the details. There's 603 more laws to go over, and I'm going to get them written down for him. So they go up. And it's 40 days that, that uh, Moses is up there. And the Israelites get tired of waiting and say, okay, never mind, we'll just worship this golden calf instead. And they break the contract. 40 days in, and they've broken the contract. Okay? God is not happy about this. God is, is angry. And Moses goes before God and asks him to forgive them. Now, the Israelites never actually repent of this. They just stop sinning. But they don't repent. But Moses goes and says, please forgive them. For my sake, forgive them. And God says, okay. I mean, it's, it's a longer conversation than that. But basically, he says, okay, I will forgive them. And he doesn't wipe them out. In fact, he doesn't really seem to punish them very much at all. And when he makes that decision, in that conversation with Moses, God declares to Moses why he has behaved this way. It's because of who he is. And this is how God defines himself. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He says, I'm doing this because I am gracious. Among other things, we're focusing on grace. And in the, in the translation I'm using, that, the word, word behind this gets translated in different ways. 
So the word in yellow is always the same root word, okay? That's why it's yellow. Because sometimes it gets translated as mercy or favor, that kind of thing. But it's the same word. It's that generosity. And what he's saying is, I am a God who is generous. And I respond to people with generosity. And so you've messed up. You completely violated this contract 40 days in. I will forgive you, which is far more than you deserve. In fact, not only will I not punish you, but I will still give you all the benefits of the covenant. He's a generous God. This is who I am. And this moment of God displaying his generosity to Israel is burned into their memories. So much so that this formula becomes something they repeat over and over again. It's one of the most repeated phrases in the Old Testament. And it comes up when the Israelites are, have messed up and they're thinking about, is there any hope that God's going to take us back? Is there any hope we're going to get out of this? For instance, uh, the prophet Joel wrote, he was writing to the Israelites at a time where either they were being attacked by plagues of locusts or he's poetically describing an army to look like locusts and it's actually a military thing. We're not sure, but bad stuff was happening. And here's what Joel says. He tells them, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. He says, repent, because God is compassionate. He gives more than we deserve. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings to the Lord our God. Notice the logic here. It's not, hey, God is compassionate, therefore, if we repent, he's obligated to protect us. That's not, that's not grace. Remember, grace is uh, more than you deserve. So he's not saying if we relent, that if, if we repent, then he owes it to us. What he's saying is, hey, let's repent because God is generous, and maybe because he's generous, he will be generous to us now, even though we don't deserve it. Because we know that's the kind of God he is. Amos says essentially the same thing. He sa- tells the Israelites, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy, grace, on the remnant of Joseph. What's happening here is, and what happens throughout the Old Testament, we have this weird, we have this interpretation of the Old Testament, of God in the Old Testament as being angry and judgmental. But that's not what the Israelites come out of the Old Testament saying. They come out of the Old Testament saying God is gracious and merciful because he continually forgives them and is gracious to them. And they have story after story after story of where they only kind of half-heartedly repented and he still protected them. Or they didn't even repent. They just called out because they were suffering and he protected them. And he does all these things to be more generous than they deserve. And they, they realize this is who God is. He is a generous God. So much so, this one's actually kind of funny, that, that it's because God had a solid reputation for being generous that Jonah refused to go to Nineveh. Because God sent Jonah, an Israelite, to Nineveh, the capital of the enemy empire, to tell them that he was going to destroy them. And Jonah refused to go. He ran the other way. And why did he refuse to go? He tells us in Jonah chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He said, I knew you were going to do this. You have proved so many times that you are gracious. Jonah was trying to contain God's grace because he thought he was being too generous. But that's based on Jonah's knowledge in the history of Israel that God is gracious, that he's generous. He responds with grace. In fact, the Israelites were so convinced of this that one of the things the Psalms teach us 
over and over again is to pray for God's grace. There's like 30 instances of this. I'll read you one. Have mercy or be gracious to me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Over and over again, the Psalms teach us to pray for God's grace, to ask Him to be generous. Not because that prayer obligates Him to be generous to us. That wouldn't be generosity. But because our God is a generous God, and He often responds in those ways. See, I think part of the problem we get into with grace is we tend to think of God as like a a magistrate or a vending machine, like someone who operates by rules that are meant to be controlled. And we say, uh, we need to know if A, then B. You know, these are the rules. But God is actually a person. He's our Father. And this is a relationship that we have with Him. Which means that God responds with grace to us. God is gracious. He responds to His people with kindness and generosity. This is who He is. And so there is value in pleading with God to be gracious, just as there is value. If you're a parent and you've had your kid plead with you to be gracious, you know that that has power. Sometimes. There are other times it does not. But, but that's the point. Like, like there's, there's a relationship dynamic there. There's a love that is granted. And, and when, it, I, you know, when we're being perfect parents, on those rare occasions, the, the difference between getting a, a, getting a good response and not is not based on, like, we don't love the kid. It's based on what's right for them. Or it's based on that situation, what they're doing at the moment. You know, uh, but this is what, it, what God's grace is. It's a relationship. And in fact, the Old Testament tells us about the kinds of things that God responds to with grace. As we get to know His personality, these are the kinds of things that God responds to with grace. So in Psalm 84, it says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those whose walk is blameless. So God responds to integrity with graciousness. Now, does that mean that you can earn good things from God by having enough integrity? No, that's not grace. Grace is Grace is overabundance. It's, it's generosity. But what it means is that God answers the integrity that we, when we make integrity a priority, he, he answers that graciously. He responds to that desire for us having whatever integrity we can muster. He responds to that. He honors that. In Proverbs 3, it says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Then you will win favor or grace in a good name in the sight of God and man. Love and faithfulness. God responds to those with graciousness. Doesn't mean you can earn it from Him, but this is God's personality. This is how His character, when He sees us striving for love and faithfulness, He honors that and responds to that. In Exodus 20, He says, I show love to a thousand generations of those who love Me and keep My commandments. God responds to our obedience with graciousness, with generosity. He honors that from us. He appreciates that in us. Like, I appreciate it. Every time I see my two-and-a-half-year-old son trying to do something that I ask him to do, even if he can't do it, I, I appreciate him trying, right? Now, now, we have 500 years of Protestant radar that may be going off right now sounding like I'm saying that you can earn your way to heaven, which is absolutely what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that because those are not the only kinds of things that prompt God's um, grace. It's, so far, I've only listed good things. But... There are other things that Scripture says prompt God's graciousness. One of them is, he is uh, Proverbs says, he, proud, he mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. 
This one is frequently quoted in the New Testament. That God shows graciousness, generosity to people simply because they're on the bottom of the pile. Simply because they're oppressed. Because they're suffering. Right? God responds to that state with graciousness. Psalm 51 begins, one of those psalms that begins with a plea for grace. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And later on, he says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Notice, he's not saying you cannot despise, like there's a rule that if I do this, God has to forgive me. He's saying you will not despise because this is your character. That God shows compassion even if all we have is a broken heart. If all we can offer him is our brokenness, God responds to that with generosity. What I'm trying to tell you, uh, oh, sorry, there's one more. Deuteronomy 4. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. What this tells us is that God shows grace simply because he promised to. There are times that we receive grace and it's for no other reason than the fact that he promised that he would. And maybe it wasn't even me he promised. Maybe he's responding to someone else's prayer for me. God shows grace for a lot of different reasons. He is, by nature, a gracious God. He is generous. And the reason why this is important is because I want us to know when we are on our knees before God, when we feel like we have no other place to turn, you're not turning to a God who is cold and calculating and already did the math and has already decided and it's all, you're just praying to a wall. You're praying to a God who loves you, who is generous who wants to be generous to you. That's the relationship that we need to have in mind when we are considering going to God, bringing Him our brokenness, bringing Him our shame, bringing Him that feeling that we have that we're failing to measure up. We need to know that the God who answers us is generous. Because the truth is, when we're talking about God's expectations, we do fail to measure up. But He's generous with us. And He cares about our broken heart. And He cares about about our desire to follow Him, and He responds to us. He answers us. Now, knowing that, this guides us into what Jesus has to say about grace, which technically, if you look for the word grace, is not very much, because Jesus hardly mentions the word grace. In fact, I'm not sure He does. Um, and, which is surprising if, you're, if we think that the gospel is, is summarized by saying, by grace you've been saved through faith, which is a common summary of the gospel that people use. That's the verse. Saved by grace through faith. That's not how Jesus summarized the gospel. Jesus summarized the gospel by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, what that means, God is already king, right? He's God. He can't be less than king. If he's not king over everything, he's not God. But the kingdom, the reign of God, means that people on earth are actually obeying him. They're actually working out his will. That's why when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's two ways of saying the same thing. Your kingdom come means your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? So when Jesus came, He's declaring that the kingdom is coming. What that means is that before, God was showing the Israelites how gracious He was. He was showing the Israelites who He was. But it wasn't changing them. They weren't actually becoming a different kind of people from the rest of the world. They were just revealing how broken we all really are. But the point of God's grace and the point of, of, of God working through us is that we are changed and we behave in different ways and we obey Him, right? That's what makes it the kingdom. And so when Jesus talks about grace, He actually talks about a different component because the Israelites already knew that God was gracious, but it, they let it end with them. 
They received it, and that's it. And so Jesus calls them out on it. And one of the ways he does is by teaching them the Lord's Prayer, which says, as, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Is that catching anybody else's throat when you pray it? Is that hard for anyone else to say? I don't like that part. And it's interesting because that is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus comments on after he teaches it. It's the only verse that gets any commentary. And here's what he says. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I love youth, working with youth, because they ask questions you're not allowed to ask. Because I was teaching this one time in youth group. I was teaching, going through the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the kids said, does that mean that the way we treat other people affects how God treats us? And the orthodoxy I'd been taught was flashing, no, no, that can't be what it means. But that is what it means. That's what he's saying. And it's not the only place. Um, it's not the only place. And Jesus always makes this connection between God's generosity to us and, his, and our generosity to others. He gives these instructions to the disciples. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, Freely you have received, freely give. Like they will represent the kingdom by giving as generously as they have received. That's how they represent the kingdom to people, is by being agents of God's generosity, agents of His grace. Jesus tells a parable that's really pointed when Peter asks about this principle. And the parable goes like this. There's a king who has a servant. We'll call him Servant A. And Servant A owes $11 billion to the king. Okay? And the king calls Servant A in and says, Servant A, I want my $11 billion. And Servant A says, I don't have it. And the, servant, the king says, okay, throw him in jail. And Servant A begs and pleads and says, please forgive me, I, you know, don't send me to jail. And the king says, all right, fine, I will forgive you, I'll be gracious, I'll be generous. You, you're, the debt is forgiven, you don't even owe me anymore. So Servant A goes out with a new lease on life, and he finds Servant B, who owes him like 50 bucks. And he says, all right, Servant B, give me the 50 bucks. And Servant B says, I can't, I don't have it. He says, all right, throw him in jail. And Servant B begs and pleads, and Servant A says, sorry, I don't care, and has him thrown in jail. And the king hears about this. The king hears about this person he forgave $11 billion, and that guy wouldn't forgive a $50 debt. And this is what Jesus says he did. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And that's, that's pretty... He's saying our, our forgiveness, the grace that we receive, is not supposed to dead end with us. It is supposed to go to others. Now, I'm not bringing up any of this to make anybody question whether they've forgiven enough to get into heaven. Because, again, that gets back into the exchange thing. And you have to remember that God is gracious. He's generous to us. And He's generous even when we fail to forgive. But the point of what Jesus is saying here is that we don't, if we receive grace and we hoard it to ourselves, we've received it in vain. It's supposed to go to other people. Luke writes this. Uh, Jesus says this in Luke. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
We know this passage, judge, and, uh, judge not and you will not be judged. And I've always read this, and this is a, probably the right reading, that if I don't judge other people, God won't judge me. And we, we have to talk about what judging means. It doesn't mean, you know, ignoring sin, but you know, being judgmental. But there's another aspect to this. That the way we treat others it has a relationship to the way God treats us. But also, there's actually another way to translate this last verse, uh, which is equally valid, because there's a third-person plural pronoun in there. It means this. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For, your standard of me- for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Notice, they will give to you generously. Because there's another level to this. When we, God is generous to us, we become generous to other people. Other people receive that generosity, and at times that can cause them to be more generous in return. So, we, you know, we condemn not so we won't be condemned by God, but also we're less likely to be condemned by others. Because there is that reciprocal nature, that, that give and take in our relationships where the more judgmental I am of other people, the more condemning I am of other people, the harsher I am on other people, the harsher they're going to be on me. Also, the harsher they're going to be on themselves, the harsher they're going to be on others. This is all interconnected. And this is why Jesus makes the point to the people of Israel, you know that God is gracious, but that grace is supposed to transform you. God's grace should transform His people to be gracious to others. Because His generosity is not supposed to end with you. It is supposed to flow through you. If God gives you more generosity than you can hold, it's probably because you're supposed to overflow into others. And we talk about this in terms of material giving, but it's also in terms of forgiveness and compassion and letting people off the hook and the pressure we put each other under. We're called to be generous. And it is in this context that we can start to read Paul. Because one of the things I've experienced, and and you may or may not have experienced this, may or may not be helpful to you, but what I've experienced is this sense that um, often people will talk about grace as, like, you have to get grace right in order to get the gospel right. Real Christians have, have the doctrine of grace right. If you get the doctrine of grace wrong, you're not really a Christian. I'll give you kind of the context for that, because there, there's, there's a place they get that from the Bible, but it's because we don't understand what Paul is saying. All right, so in Ephesians it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So he's saying, you didn't get in by your works, you didn't do in by, get in by doing good things, you got in by grace, so don't brag. Because, so the problem seems to be thinking that you got in, that you earned your way in. That's the problem. So that's the false gospel. Okay? In Romans, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Again, he seems to be saying, like, the problem, the, the opposite of grace is thinking that you earned your way to heaven. And that, if you think that, there's no chance for you. And that, that really gets, put a point on, gets a point put on it, when you read it, in Galatians. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And then he says in Galatians 5, You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. What this seems to say is that the worst thing you can do 
is try to earn your salvation. That God can forgive all the bad things you've ever done, but He can't forgive you for the good things you've done to try and get into heaven. Right? There's actually, as, as I look up what comes up when you Google this question, what does the Bible say about grace? One of the first articles started by saying that the doctrine of grace alone um, is the, sets apart a gospel that can save from a gospel that doesn't. Which means that if you misunderstand the gospel of grace, you can't receive grace. Now, I don't believe that you can earn your way to heaven. I do believe you can be forgiven for trying. But that's not what Paul is actually talking about. That's not the obstacle that he's addressing. What he's talking about is in line with what, what Jesus was saying about grace. Because the focus, when, when Paul talks about works of the law, he's not talking about works of the moral law. He's not talking about doing good things to earn your way into heaven. He's talking about works of the law of Moses. Which is different, because the point of the law of Moses is not to make you a better person. Like, like, it's not, like, there's nothing morally good about circumcision. That's not a moral achievement. What it does is it sets you apart as God's people, as this special group of people that God is do- has this special contract with, right? So the point of the law of Moses was to separate people. And so when people in, in the church were saying you need to follow the law of Moses in order to be Christians, they're saying you can't be a Gentile and be a Christian. You have to be a Jew to follow Jesus. And that was the problem Paul was talking about. So when you look at those three passages in Ephesians, Romans, and Galatians, what Paul is actually addressing is divisions in the church. So let's look at Ephesians when he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. The climax of that passage, the point that he's building up to in the crescendo is here in Ephesians 2. He says, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who have made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. The law was a dividing wall that separated Jews from Gentiles, and Jesus abolished it. And why did he abolish it? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Part of the reason Jesus died was to put to death our hostility, the divisions between us. And that seems to be Paul's point about grace. The reason why grace is important is because it means we all got in on scholarship. None of us can say, hey, I got in because I, I'm the one who satisfied God's expectations. None of us can say that. Jews can't say it. Gentiles can't say it. We all got in on grace, which means that, the whole, that you can't have first-class citizens and second-class citizens. We can't say that there's some Christians who satisfy God and some people who don't satisfy God or slightly satisfy like, like It takes that idea of satisfaction off the table because we all got in on scholarship. The point of that is to put us on equal footing, to make us brothers and sisters. It's the same thing that he's saying in Romans chapter 3. We already read the first verse. It just continues straight on. He says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Or is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. He offers, you know, he lets us in through, through grace and through our faithfulness in Jesus because that gives everyone access. 
Right? There's this, I, he, Paul is making this clear because Paul's mission is to preach to the Gentiles. He wants the Gentiles to know that God loves them and is going to be generous to them too. And if we say, no, you have to, do, you have to become a Jew, you have to follow the law of Moses, that abolishes the generosity of God through Jesus and the idea that this is supposed to spread from person to person. What he's saying is, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, God has grace for you. He will be generous to you. And ultimately, this is the same place he's going in Galatians. Every time Paul really emphasizes the fact that we're saved by grace, his point is to say that that means we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Because here's where he goes in Galatians. He says, In Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See what he's saying here? He's continuing to break down these barriers and say that you don't need to belong to one specific group to satisfy God. And you can't say this group is the first class part of the church or these are the ones who really satisfy God. That's not how we got in. We all got in on scholarship. We all got in because God is generous. And that puts us on an even playing field that takes the pressure off of us to compete, to achieve, to try and be the best so that we can make the cut. It's all graded on a curve. It's what God does. He grades on a curve. And that, that takes the pressure off of us. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how we behave or it doesn't matter that we're godly, but what it means is we can focus on simply being good because we love God and we want to be like Him. Not because we have to satisfy all these expectations. What Paul ultimately says about grace is that God's grace breaks down the divisions and barriers between human beings. And the vision that I'm hoping you see through the storyline of Scripture and through the testimony of God's people is that, that God's grace transforms our world. And it brings us that world that we talked about yearning for at the beginning of the sermon. Because the first step is that God responds to our brokenness and failure with kindness and generosity. I, want, I need you to know that when you come to God, you are coming to your Father who is generous, who gives generously, and that is how you will be received. It doesn't mean He'll give you exactly what you want, because He's also good, and He does what is right, but He will be generous. He will be kind. That is who He is. But all, the next thing we need to know is that the generosity of God should fill our other relationships with grace too. We can't receive God's grace and then be stingy with others. We can't be that, that servant that, re- that had the huge debt forgiven and holds on to little debts. Right? We have to be gracious to others. And, and being gracious, being generous with others, I think it's almost more important that we are emotionally and spiritually generous with others, you know, maybe even than being materially generous with others. We can be materially generous with other people and still treat them like dirt, right? We can be materially gen- generous in ways that are really degrading, actually. But it's important that we are, we are emotionally and spiritually generous, that we forgive, that we take the pressure off. And ultimately, that's who we are called to be as a church. The church is called to be a place full of God's grace, where all are loved and forgiven by God and each other. Now, we're going to have bad days. 
We're going to have, you know, not sleep well the night before. We're going to be grouchy. We're going to have times where we don't act the way we know we're supposed to. But ultimately, what we are striving to be as a congregation is to be a place where people can walk in and that pressure is lifted. That idea that I have to say every single thing right in order to be approved of. I have to do everything right in order to be approved of. I'm constantly being analyzed and judged. I have to measure up to everything. No, because God is gracious, and that makes us gracious people. That is the vision that I have for, for any church, to be this overflowing source of God's grace. And if we can be that in this community, you know the power that can have. Because everyone is seeking that. Whether they realize it or not, everybody is seeking that. It can only really be found in Jesus Christ, in the grace of God. He's the only one who has enough grace to fill all of us. So as we close, I'm going to give you a few ways that you can take next steps. The first one is you can give your life to Jesus. If you have not embraced the grace of God and haven't received it, today is the best day to do that. The God that you are facing is generous and kind, and He loves you, and He wants to give to you, and He wants you to come to Him, and he's, He wants you to give your life to Him. And so today is the best day for you to do that. You can, if you want to talk to somebody at the church about it, you can check that box on your connection card. You can get in touch with us if you're online through a connection card or call the church. If you're ready to make that decision, you can just come down while we're singing our final song. You can also sign up for a Connect class on your Connection card. If you want to know more about this church, what we do, and how you can be a part of it, our next one is on August 8th at 1230. Uh, we provide food, and we just spend an hour and a half talking about the church. And we'd love for you to get to know more about us and, and, and what it means to belong to this church. Another thing you can do is join a small group. Our small groups are ways that we come together to pour into each other, to be gracious to each other emotionally and spiritually and and, and we form these communities that are able to love each other in that way. We'd love for you to get involved in one of those. And finally, we give back by joining service teams. You can mark that you want to join a service team on your card. You can also just show up on Friday morning for our VBS day, uh, craft day, or on Saturday morning for our deacon yard maintenance day and give back in that way. But God calls us to receive his generosity and to give generously. So we encourage you to make one of those decisions. So please think that over. Uh, you know, mull over that in your heart and and make a check on your connection card. That's what God's calling you to do. But uh, please stand now as we uh, sing our final song, which is very appropriate. Amazing grace. <laughs>